Welcome to another episode of the Businesses Blooming podcast. We've got a really exciting show planned today. Our guest is a therapist, more importantly, a business coach. She is Miriam. Miriam, how are you doing today? I am doing so good. I'm so excited to be here. And I love the play on words you do with your last name and the name of your podcast. Very fun. I appreciated it. I had a, a few different names for it, but candidly, I was at Friday night services at the synagogue one time, and I had a good friend who's probably listening to this or will listen to this eventually. And he said, "No, business is blooming. You have to go with that name." So happy yeah. we were able to to get that done. But awesome, really appreciate that. Um, first thing I wanted to get into was we'd love to know kind of a bit about your background, kind of where you grew up, and when you first got interested in therapy, and just eventually being a coach. Yeah. My whole life, I've been very fascinated by people. I've been interested in um, self-development. Initially, it was more my own self-development, but what helps other people self-develop? And um, I, you know, initially I was mentoring students, university students, and they had a whole lot of kind of like mental health type things. And I was sending them to therapists all the time. And I said, why don't I get that degree? So I got that degree did it for a long time and found out the people I liked working with the best were entrepreneurs. And at the same time, I received some coaching that was awesome. And I saw the difference between therapy and coaching. And I decided that was my next um, pivot. And so right now I work with midlife um, entrepreneurs. I'm a visionary and strategic coach, and I basically help them navigate their dreams and transitions and um it's great it's so much fun awesome so one thing to get into that you mentioned really quickly you said there's kind of a difference between therapy and coaching where there's many similarities but from your perspective from someone who's been a therapist now a business coach working with entrepreneurs what do you think some of the stark differences are well, I, I definitely think that there's some huge overlaps. And so if um, I'm going to give a simplistic definition and they're going to be therapists who say, no, I do both of those. And they're going to be coaches that say, no, I do both of those. But really therapy for the most part uh, assumes that something damaging happened in your background and it is a look back mm -hmm. to look forward. How can we fix that? How can we help that? You have these symptoms and what are they coming from? Coaching mm -hmm. is much more forward looking and it is, I wanna go there, wherever there is. And it's like, how, what are the steps to get you there? And of course, definitely in coaching, there are times where I will say, okay, what in your childhood mimic the feeling that you're having right now? And definitely as a therapist, there were times where I looked forward. But in general, there is a much greater um, sense of, you know, either the looking forward or the looking back. I also think that therapy, especially because of the whole insurance model, it pushes people mm -hmm. to pathologize things. It pushes therapists to pathologize things. Oh, you have an anxiety disorder. You have a this disorder or that disorder. And obviously not every therapist is like that. But in order to get insurance to pay for it, you have to have some sort of thing. I'm going to use this in air quotes wrong with you. And in coaching, um, the assumption is that the answer is within you and let's do whatever it is we need to take to pull it out. There's nothing wrong with you. There are just things that are blocking you. So let's let's remove those roadblocks. Got it. Okay. So because of the kind of system that we're in, unfortunately, therapy lends itself to really pathologize things. And ultimately, people are 
we'll say not that a select number of therapists are kind of encouraged to like seek for some kind of diagnosis, even if it may just be a conversation someone's needing, or as opposed to in coaching, you're really trying to get something out of someone and help them achieve something. Does that sound right? Absolutely. And if you're the therapist who doesn't need to accept insurance, you can use whatever model you want. And um, and I'll, I can I can hear a lot of my colleagues saying I don't do that. And I you know it, I think there's a lot of fluidity between those. But in general, uh, therapists are saying what's wrong? How can we fix it? And coaches are saying where do you want to go? Let me walk with you and help you get there. Got it. Okay. Awesome. Interesting. That's really a unique way of looking at it. Uh, another thing to get into. So, you know, there may be a lot of entrepreneurs out there, especially folks that are just starting out that may, you know, when they're starting their businesses, they're heads down in the weeds, almost kind of have like tunnel vision. So a lot of these people I'm guessing may need help, but they're kind of, I'm using this in air quotes as you did earlier, their egos may get in the way. So two, that being said, two quick follow-ons, like one, when do you think uh, an entrepreneur should consider going to kind of a business coach? And two, what are some of the things you would initially discuss with them in kind of initial meetings? Yeah. Business coaching is fascinating because on the one hand, nobody has a budget for it and nobody, quote unquote, needs a business coach. The question is, do you mm -hmm. want to get there faster? So you can get there by reading mm -hmm. books and by having conversations and by Googling and whatever, but there is something magical about that relationship between you and your coach where they, where you trust them and you're able to say, I know the right thing I need to do is X, but I, I'm, I'm stopped. And I don't know why I'm stopped, but I'm stopped. Mm -hmm. And then that dialogue and conversation, you might, it might take you two or three or five or 10 years to make the kind of mo movement you can make when you hire a coach where it's a good fit. Mm -hmm. And so I tell people all the time, um, yeah, you can get there without me, but it's going to take you four times as long. It's amazing when um, somebody knows that their homework was to accomplish A, B, C, and D before our next conversation. And they'll tell me, oh crap, I, I did it yesterday, but I got it done. You know, and that's the sort of thing that moves the machinery forward is just the accountability, the conversations, the support, the um, honestly, the cheerleading. And if you look at any great athlete, you hire a coach. If you want to become an Olympic athlete, you hire a coach because there's something um, magical about mm -hmm. having someone outside of you watch your progress, cheer it on, say, hey, have you thought about this? challenge some of your limiting ideas. Um, I don't know. Did that answer your question? I think so. Yeah. I think it definitely got into kind of why people, you know, may struggle to kind of get a coach, but then also why I may having someone on the outside, I could really help out someone. So that being said, I have a bit of a, of a hot take question. So a lot of times, you know, there are a lot of coaches we'll see, I think, especially in the NBA, I could be, could be wrong on this. So nobody sue me if this is inaccurate, but Kind of a lot of the best coaches never actually played like a certain sport. They were always surrounded by it, always try to learn more. So my first question, I guess two follow-up questions. So the first one may be rhetorical, but do you think someone has to kind of go through a certain discipline in order to become a coach in it? And two, kind of the select few that kind of haven't done that, that haven't, for example, been players and have become coaches, why do you think that they've become so successful? I think that coaching really is comprised of 
do you understand how humans grow, like the growth process? And so if somebody doesn't understand the growth process, they're going to be a terrible coach, even if they did play in that sport or if they were in those various things. I think it is useful at times to be involved in various things in that you have insider knowledge. You can say, you can ask certain kinds of questions. You can communicate in a way that is um, a little more consultant-y, but not being in that particular mm -hmm. discipline allows you to ask questions with a learner's mind in a way that like sometimes people who are in it have been in it so much and all of the input and advice they're getting from all of the people around them is kind of the same because they've all been in it and they've all done it. And the person who is outside of it has the opportunity to look with really fresh eyes and say, hey, what about this? How come it isn't done this way? And sometimes people will say, uh, uh, because it's never been done that way, but there's no good reason for it to not be done, done that way. And then all of a sudden this new avenue opens up. So, I mean, it's a both and. Um, I definitely think having done the thing before, whatever it is, lends real credibility. But sometimes the strength in the person who has never done the thing, but is insanely curious, good at asking questions and good at not needing the other person to like them. Like if I need you to like me, I'm not mm -hmm. going to ask as powerful a question as if I'm just going to ask the question. And if you mm -hmm. like me, great. And if you don't, great. It doesn't matter. It's your life. You know, that doesn't mean I'm obnoxious mm -hmm. on purpose, but if I can be bold enough to ask the questions that no one else will ask, it doesn't matter if I have a background in that or not, because I can ask you a question. I can say, Hey, I don't understand how this works. Would you just explain it to me? And I've done mm -hmm. that with entrepreneurs before and they're happy to explain it. But then because I'm super good at asking questions, I can say, well, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense why this, this, or this. And then sometimes they'll say, oh, you're right. That doesn't make sense. And that will be like the little portal uh, to the next thing. Okay. So it's more of less, obviously it probably helps to have a certain background in it, but it's more of being able to think about that thought process and take kind of almost a third party point of view to what's going on. So you can objectively advise. Does that sound right? Yes. So yeah, there's actually an interesting scenario I just thought of. There's a book I'm reading now. Did you ever hear of the book called Moneyball, by any chance? I movie? haven't. Uh-uh. So Moneyball, um, I forget what exact year the, uh, kind of the book was referring to, this baseball team, but it's about the Oakland A's and essentially about the general manager. And I think this will actually be a really interesting kind of a case scenario for you to hear as well. So uh, there's this guy, Billy Bean, who was the general manager of the Oakland Athletics. And essentially... When he was coming up through baseball recruiting, as you know, there's the, the draft and how all these players go about. Uh, essentially, he was, you know, a five star athlete, just physically looking at him. People thought he had all the physical gifts to be a great baseball player. But for those that knew him, for those that really spoke with him, for his kind of personal coaches and about personal friends or family, they knew that you know, he wasn't sure on baseball. He liked the game, but it wasn't, he wasn't dying to play, if that made sense. And what ended up happening, and I'm still kind of, 60 or 70 pages through the book. So I'm definitely a, no expert on what happened, but I've seen the movie. He ended up not liking playing baseball so much and kind of got a bad rep for that. Then when he went and became an executive, a general manager, he basically used some crazy statistical techniques to draft players and focusing on this, that. So I think it's a really interesting perspective of how he had a background in baseball. 
he wasn't really great at it, but then there was another, but he still enjoyed baseball relatively. And there was another aspect that he did really, really well. So maybe it goes to show that even if you don't have a background in something or you have some kind of minor background, there's another aspect or function of it that you think you, you can excel in. And if that's something you can do. So I think that's just like a really interesting coaching perspective. I hope that that's kind of relating to what you were, were saying earlier, but I just thought it was, a, it was an interesting thing to discuss. Yeah, for sure. My guess is but, um, awesome. that he was a strategic thinker. And so he knew enough about the game to think strategically about it. He didn't want to play it, but he loved the strategy of helping them win. And there are quite a few different businesses that I um, coach and consult with that I would never want to be in that business, but I love the strategy of it. I love helping them think bigger. I love helping them win. So I'm motivated by their win, but I personally would never want to be in that business. Got it. No, no worries. Definitely understand that. And it's interesting what you said, because I, I think in the beginning of the book, it mentioned he wanted to go to Stanford or maybe he took summer classes there. And then once he was hired or advanced as the general manager, instead of hiring baseball scouts or doing things the traditional way, I had a bunch of kind of, I think, I forget the exact schools, but a bunch of very elite school graduates to kind of run, run the processes. And he kind of went against the curve, but I guess with proper coaching and a different way of looking at things, the team was able to kind of win games more efficiently, spending less than, you know, other baseball teams do typically per win. I think they won over 100 games and spent less per win than maybe most other teams or most teams in the league. So it's a really interesting, fascinating way of looking at things in the sense that, you know, it's still baseball we're thinking about or just any kind of business broadly, but someone could be so, you know, not good in one aspect of it, do something else within that business and kind of excel at it. So it's a really, really interesting way of looking at things. But awesome. Happy we could uh, feel about that. Um, another thing I wanted to get into specifically about business coaching and maybe touched upon it a bit before, but from, are there any kind of cases that you remember working on? I guess that you could share. If you can't share, that's totally cool. But uh, some harder cases that you've had to work on and kind of what your approaches were to solving business owners' issues. I think I'm going to speak generally in that I kind of have like a confidentiality thing with each of my um, coaching clients. Generally, where it gets hard is where people have competing values, like um, a situation where a, a CEO or an owner has this huge value toward developing their people and um we're a family and we're going to stay together. And then also this one particular employee is actually sabotaging their business. And now they're caught between these two values of, you know, do I put my business at risk by trying to develop this person who may or may not wish to be developed? Or do I um, go against this other value and let them go? Uh, and that helps my business, but it makes me feel like a crappy human being, stuff like that. Those kind of scenarios where you have mm -hmm. two values that are very high within you and they're like opposing one another. Um, and I think that the thing that I do with those kind of people is I, I really listen. I listen hard for um, when push comes to shove, what is the higher value? Is there a way that I can help you create movement in a way that doesn't just um, it's not all or none is like, if you have to let that person go, is there a way you can give them a giant severance so that, you know, they have time or is there a different position you can find for them? Or can you hire a coach for them 
you know, where like you can outsource their development and growth. So it's not all on you, you know, things like that. There are ways where it doesn't have to be an all or none and you can help them navigate that space where their values are at odds. I also think um, places that I have seen with quite a few entrepreneurs, um, their own reactivity is part of the problem. And either they're they're overreactive and they shoot themselves in the foot and they make decisions too quickly, or they're underreactive and they refuse to make decisions. And I think in those kind of situations, really helping them see it for what it is and um, being a little more direct and saying, this is what you're doing. What is the outcome of this next, you know, two months down the line, a year down the line, five years down the line? What are the opportunity costs that you're missing? Because either you're making decisions too quickly or you're making them too slowly and helping them see that. This isn't an isolated thing. This is actually a character thing. And is this an area you're interested in growing? Um, so those are a couple examples of some of the things that I've seen and ways that I try and help people. It's a really interesting scenario because a lot of people might have their business and emotions conflict. So it's almost, you know, ideally people could deal with that. But for those that couldn't, it's probably ideal to have a business coach come in and do their best to, I know everyone has emotions, but a coach's job is to kind of take the emotions out of it and look at things objectively. So then you try to just think of what's better for this person's business and then come up with a slew of options and then work with that business owner or person to kind of solve it. Does that sound right? Sounds pretty good to me. I mean, I do take into account the emotions. I'm not going to dismiss them. They're real. And people make decisions well, based on emotions. They want to think that they don't, but they actually do. And so I think the question is, um, you know, really, is this the, the you of now? Do you want to prioritize the you of now or the future you? What would future you want you to decide in this instance and why? And, you know, when you can stretch out the mm -hmm. timeline a little bit, that changes some of their decisions because it's sort of like if you can imagine this employee who's making you crazy continue to make you crazy for another two years while you get them kind of uh, grown, is that okay with you? And when you do it that way, they're like, uh, no, that is not okay. You know, or you want to, you know, make this snap decision. Um, how is the you of three months from now going to feel when this huge line item is still hanging over you? You know, it's on a credit card or whatever and help them feel the pain of that decision down the road. And um, now you're talking about how does the today you feel and the tomorrow you feel. So you're still working with emotions, but it is putting it into perspective. And a lot of times if people can feel the pain of next year now, they make different decisions. Got it. So you're saying a big thing that you do is helping people while still thinking emotionally, think about their emotions long term. And then they have, we'll call it a light bulb moment for kind of political correctness, but we'll have yeah. a light bulb moment. And then in that moment, they see kind of what the best course of action is, but they wouldn't have gone there if it wasn't for kind of a business coach guiding them along the way. Yeah. I definitely think at times you need someone outside of you asking the questions. It doesn't have to be a business coach. It could be a trusted advisor. It could be another person on the C-suite. It could be whomever. But I do find that someone who is um, 
with you in the organization, but not a part of the organization is incredibly valuable because I can say or ask whatever I want and I'm not worried about losing my job. And sometimes, you know, somebody who can actually see things clearly and strategically is worried about saying it to the right person because they're worried about their job position. What if I, what if I make them upset at me? What if, you know, what if, what if, what if? And I, I'm in a unique position where I don't have to worry about that. I've been contracted for X amount of awesome. time. You hired me to help you and I'm going to, this is what I see. Yeah. It's interesting. Do you think that anyone could possibly, I mean, it's going to sound like a weird question, but do you think it's possible for anyone to resist any, to resist bias completely? Or do you think to some extent we're all sort of biased? Oh, I think, I think we're all biased. We're definitely all biased, mm -hmm. but I think people who are more self-aware, um, who have kind of that higher EQ, mm -hmm. they're aware of the ways that they're biased. And so they try and hedge against them, or they'll tell the person straight up, look, I am a biased person in this area. And this is how this is showing up, you know, but yeah, we're all biased. How could we not be, you know? So for sure, because I think, you know, it's not to get too into the, we'll stay on the business front, but not to get too into the, um, the therapisty part of it, but a class I took in college, I remember just kind of the, a lot, the big part of it was uh, the whole nature versus nurture debate, which I'm sure you've heard of kind of a zillion times by now, but a lot of it was discussing how I think 30 to 60% of what we become or the person we become is determined by our nature and then 40 to 7% is our nurture. So statistically a lot of our, the way we look at things are, is determined by just our surroundings and the outside so it's not right or wrong that's just you know bias so it's a it's an interesting way of looking at it but on that note do you think that there's something anyone can do or kind of business people in particular can do to kind of reduce their bias or become emotionally aware of how they see things you know <clears throat> they say that you should hire for your weaknesses so hire somebody who isn't exactly the same as you, who doesn't see the same as you. And when you do that, and if you can not let them make you crazy, but like listen and hear and ask, invite their separate perspective, their different perspective. Um, a lot of times people find their eyes being opened and they shift a little bit. Um, so there's quite a few different kinds of tests out there, whether, you know, the Colby test or... Um, you know, you can look at Myers-Briggs or Enneagram, or there's lots of different tests and assessments that can be used. And you find out, well, I'm this kind of person. Like I know a lot of CEOs are visionaries and they're not good at implementing. They need to hire an implementer. And then that implementer needs to have the freedom to say, oh, by the way, when you change the plan every single week, it's sabotaging your business. I know you always think there's something better, but we haven't even finished what we started three weeks ago. And now you've changed it to this and now you've changed it to this. And I think it takes visionaries a while to learn there is a balance, you know? And meanwhile, implementers have to learn how to think beyond their list and to go, well, yeah, okay, A, B, C, D, E, but is there a way we can skip to Z? And sometimes there, there are ways mm -hmm. like that. So hiring people who are, or creating a team who think differently than you is exceptionally useful, but very frustrating until you learn how to like embrace that space and mm -hmm. make it your own. Actually, I love that suggestion, hiring an implementer, because a lot of the times, especially with 
large organizations and some companies may click claim that they're flat organizations, but realistically with thousands and thousands of people, someone's going to report to someone. That's just the nature of how these companies run. So it's interesting to hear that the idea of hiring an implementer, since the folks at the top are kind of the top part of an organizations may sometimes be detached from what, what's really going on. And then you can get that implementer to kind of go a little more in depth and, th and see what's going on. And maybe that just makes the chain of command a little more fluid and a little bit better for decision-making. So honestly, I think it's a really great suggestion. So it's great advice for anyone looking to kind of make better decisions for executives. So definitely uh, agree with that. But another thing to kind of want to get into, so other than implementing or kind of thinking about hiring an implementer, are there any kind of uh, one minute or mental tricks that you think executives can play just to kind of better their decision-making in the moment or just better their decision health? Like any, I know there's probably not a one size fits all, but anything from your perspective. I, I always recommend that business owners, CEOs, any, honestly, any human should do this, but I especially recommend that they do this. They fast forward to the day of their death and people are at their funeral. And what do they want people to say? What do they actually care about? Like, or if they're on their deathbed and they want their kids to be around and um, what are their, they're called eulogy values. What are your eulogy values? And, you know, for some people it's kindness or, um, philanthropy or, um, approachability or like my, my word is my bond. Like you could trust me, you know, things like that. Every person's a little bit different, but what is it you want to end your life with? And then reverse engineer that a little bit and say, is what I am creating now contributing to that? Or is what I'm creating now pulling away from that? And a lot of times people think in business, well, I'm just going to hustle for, you know, it's just this time in my life. This time is hard. I know somebody who has been saying, well, this is just an exceptionally hard time for, I mean, I've known this person for close to 25 years now. And that is just their, um, I don't know what you would call it their mo approach or viewpoint it's their approach or viewpoint mm -hmm. and it's Got like it. well if you were to die any time mm -hmm. along those 25 years you know would people have said you invested with them or would people have said you spent all your energy and time in your business and there is this kind of in the the younger business crowds there's kind of this space of yeah i got to hustle and grind for a while but then it's going to get better and um, I think there is a little bit more of a new idea coming into entrepreneurship. Create your business around the life that you would like, because if you just create your business, it's sort of like a goldfish in a bowl. It's just going to get it's going to take up whatever you give it, whatever money, whatever energy, whatever size and space. And all of a sudden you realize that you left, you know, maybe corporate and, you know, the 70 to 80 hour week, you left corporate so that you could be your own boss. And now you're on your own boss and you're working a hundred hours a week. And it's like out of the frying pan and into the fire. And so I really like to challenge people. What is the life you actually want? What's the life you want to end your life with? And what's the life you want now? And how do we engineer your business to fit into that life so that you can you know, have your life now so that if you died tomorrow, you would say, I lived yesterday well. So interesting. Do you 
from your perspective, I guess, from your therapy and business background, do you think there's a reason that most people are so short-sighted when it comes to these things? Like they think one to two years ahead instead of what they want their life to look like? I think that it's hard to imagine what you don't have. So it's really hard. Mm -hmm. Like when you were 10, I don't think you could really imagine what it would be like to be in college because you hadn't been there yet, you mm -hmm. know? And um, it, it's just very difficult to imagine places where you haven't been. Now, there are some people who are really good visionaries and they're able to imagine that, but it's, it's not as easy as it sounds. And when you look back 10 years, you go, oh my gosh, look at all the things I've done. Look at the things I've changed. And it actually doesn't matter what decade you look back from 20 to 10. Wow, you changed a ton. But honestly, from 30 to 20, you changed a ton. And if you keep going up, there are all these changes that happen because life is so dynamic and fluid. But when you're in the moment, you have a tendency to think the you that is present is the real you. This is, this is the real me and I won't be that much different 10 years from now. But I thought that, you know, 10 years ago, and if I look at the changes in my life over the last decade, they're monumental. So I have to assume that the changes in the future decade are going to be equally monumental, but they're hard to imagine. Interesting. It's a, it's a positive point. There's a quick follow into that. With respect to age, but some of the some of your clients that are in the later parts of their career uh, on a high level, because definitely you know not trying not trying to be too intrusive or kind of not have any regulation violations, but are there any common regrets that you see these folks have, like with, with regards to their business or kind of other aspects? I see regrets about letting. I'm going to use the word tolerating. What are you tolerating? Sure. Things that they were tolerating. There's a lot of regrets that they didn't deal with those things sooner. Something intuitively inside them um, told them that a change needed to be made and they put it off for whatever reason, made excuses for the other person or um, I will later or I'll do it when. And I think there's a lot of regrets for those kind of things. And um, sometimes people are kind to themselves and they say, you know, I did what I could with what I knew and had at the time. And I, and I do encourage that. I encourage people to be kind with their past selves. They were doing the best they can. And there were things that were constraining, but also they do look back and say, you know, when I finally made that decision, I had the skill set to do it. Why didn't I do it sooner? Where would I have been if I had done it sooner? What would the opportunity costs, like the gains, what would have the opportunity gains been had I done it sooner? And, you know, you see this in people dating. There is a space where they know they need to break up and, um, and they let it drag on and on and on and on. And then they'll say, well, I want to give that person a chance or I'm just not, oh, I don't want to do it right before the holidays. I don't want to, I'm just, I'm tired. I can't deal with it. And before you know it, another year has gone by you know, and maybe it got a little bit better and, oh, well, things are going a little bit better, but still it was like a stock on the stock market where the general trend is down. Even though it might've been going up and down, the general trend was down. And it's like, if you ask them, they're like, oh, I wish I would have broken up, you know, when I first knew a year and a half earlier. 
So those are the kind of regrets I see uh, business owners and entrepreneurs having. I appreciate that. So they I agree. I think people may like something to go on. And then, you know, if you have a gut feeling, we'll call it our intuition here, that something's not going to work out, uh, it becomes harder and harder, maybe more in the relationship, but two, not to just make a clean break. Like it becomes harder to make a clean break as time goes on. So I definitely yeah. think that that's really good advice there. So is your main point there just to have kind of a little more risk tolerance for the kind of things you're trying, or if there's any pressing issues to kind of face them head on instead of just kind of smoothing along and pretending that they're not there? Yes. Yeah. I love the face it head on, yeah. you know, and no, you're not going to die from mm -hmm. doing something hard. Mm -hmm. Got it. Totally. That's uh, I think it's, it's a great way of looking at it. And I think one, one area that I think is really interesting and I'm, I'm certainly no academic, but uh, I think a lot of times, especially growing up, we're almost conditioned to fear failure, to fear not doing something well. I almost wish that growing up or in school, they, they almost, there's a class that teaches you on failure and, kind of a, a class on risk tolerance, because I think maybe that would help people in life, but in business in general, I think. Uh, yeah. Maybe Wouldn't something that be great? That makes sense. Yeah. I no, so. I, I think that I would know, be it, fantastic. Because it feels like a lot of people are scared of failing and it's almost, I don't know if there's any clinical description for it, but it's almost like, what can you do to get people to be not reckless, but more risk tolerant? I think it's an interesting concept. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know what I think about this. People will say, um, you know, for thousands of years, really up until just recently, if you were not part mm -hmm. of the crowd, you were pretty much dead. Mm -hmm. Like in caveman times, if you weren't part of the crowd, you were left out. And if you look in like the medieval times, if you weren't part of the like typical way of thinking, you were, you know, called a witch or put on a stake or whatever, you know, you were killed, honestly. And so mm -hmm. it has developed within people um, this huge fear of being different and of standing out. And I think everybody's risk tolerance is so much less because there's this, like for generation upon generation mm -hmm. before us, um, there were real like life and death consequences to making poor choices if you like changed your way of farming and you said, Hey, I don't want to plant in the spring. I'm going to plant in the summer instead, or I'm going to plant in the winter and see what happens. And your crop failed. That meant your family starved. There wasn't like a supermarket to go to, you know, and it took courageous people who maybe like hedged their bets and did like eight fields the way it was supposed to be in two fields, the new idea to see if it worked. Um, but I, I think you're right. We, we all have a huge fear of failure and you have to kind of get acclimated to what does that fear feel, feel like, and how can I talk myself through it and just get used to that? Ooh, I'm feeling nervous cause I'm trying something new and that's okay. It's kind of interesting. Maybe the, the fact, one of the things that you brought up that kind of piques my imagination, you know, you said, we'll call it back in the day or kind of hundreds of years yeah. ago, I think people can somewhat it's around what was going on then we're not going to go too far back where we have religious arguments but five six hundred years ago you know if someone stood out from the crowd or did something that was different let's just say they were much more in ethical punishments so maybe somehow that fear might have conditioned itself to present day where i mean i don't want to get in the whole argument but now you know seemingly there's uh people don't don't uh 
put you on like a whatever they did to witches back in the day. They don't do that if you say you're a little different or do your own thing. But I think maybe that fear has somehow been conditioned in folks or even evidently, you know, there's room, there's, there's, they have some kind of risk tolerance or availability to take risks, but somehow, some way, because of past thinking, uh, for whatever reason, people aren't as risk tolerant. So it's, it's an interesting concept. I mean, I hope people are, are less scared than they were way back in like the medieval ages. Um, but, you know, just food for thought. I'm no psychologist, but it could be something that's conditioned us for sure. Yeah. Well, and that goes back to your question about nature and nurture. It depends on, you know, entrepreneurial parents tend to have entrepreneurial kids because the entrepreneurial parents mm-hmm. have learned how to deal with that risk tolerance and they teach their kids, hey, you're not going to die. Go try it. What's the worst that happens? You lose a hundred bucks or whatever, you know, but the other non-entrepreneur parents are saying very different things to their kids. They're like, be careful, get this kind of degree so that you can have a good life. No, don't do that. No, that's really risky. You know, I mean, it's like a very, very different kind of feeling. And um, it's fascinating when you have someone who is from a non-entrepreneur family, then choose to become an entrepreneur the parents freak out. You're ruining your life. What are you doing? Your your kids are going to starve. You know, like there's all this kind of pushback against that. And it really shows me we are conditioned to think a certain way. And um, I don't know what Edison's parents were like, but I love that he said, no, nah, I didn't fail with the light bulb. I learned 10,000 ways to not make a light bulb. And I'm going, well, somewhere along the line, there was some good parenting there that said, hey, it's okay. Try it again. No worries. It's interesting to bring it up because it's like, you know, I think broadly, you know, people are raised the way their parents raised and back and back, or maybe there's some kind of traitor. Someone somewhere, maybe if it's not a direct descendant, might have had that that one, uh, I don't want to call it chutzpah, but like that one switch attitude in the sense of like, okay, I was raised this way, but I want to try this. Maybe that has an aspect to play with risk tolerance. So maybe it's not directly, uh, like directly through a family bloodline, but somehow indirectly if there's like another family member or outside influence uh, it's hard to pinpoint i know i'm kind of a beating around the bush here but it's hard to pinpoint exactly where that switch comes from because i think a lot of times entrepreneurs may be studied in business and you know people that change the grain or kind of go the other switch people obsess over you know what made them what was the magic formula and to my knowledge no magic formula has been discovered yet yeah, would love to know your thoughts on this but it seems like for whatever reason, there's no name for it, but people who are entrepreneurs or want to change something just have that magical umph to, to kind of do their own thing. So really something interesting and curious if that ever, curious if it has a name or curious if it will ever have a name, honestly. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if it has a name per se. I think that entrepreneurs are a fascinating breed of people. They have a little bit of... um ego that somehow says, Mm -hmm. yeah, I know this hasn't been solved before, but I can solve it. It's like a, it's a good kind of ego, you know? Um, They have Mm -hmm. a little bit of magical thinking where, yeah, I know this is going to be hard, but I can do it. Or yeah, I mean, I know that, what is it? Seven out of 10 businesses fail in the first five years, but it's not going to be mine. Or, you know, there's just this incredible optimism. I have not met very many entrepreneurs who are not optimistic. In fact, I'm trying to think if I know of even one of them. They all have the tendency to think, nah, I can figure this out. 
if I just work at it long enough, I'm going to figure it out. They have a strong um, belief that A, it is figure outable and that they can figure it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love that about them. That's why when I was a therapist, I loved working with that mindset. And as a coach, I just love working with people who think, yeah, it's a problem, but it can be figured out. You know, I mean, our world has a ton of problems going on. So I'm glad that there are entrepreneurs out there who are starting to work on these. Like, and I can't remember his name, but the guy who's doing the ocean cleanup thing, some kid who decided instead of belly aching about it, let's raise some money, let's figure it out and let's go catch that trash. And he's taken apart the Pacific Ocean patch trash thing, you know, one like huge boatload at a time. I love that. Only an entrepreneur would think of that. Is that his, is that his catchphrase, catch that trash? I don't think so. I just meant it just literally. <laughs> no, was, he just literally no, I, is. Yeah. I mean, I've, I don't know the, the kid's name either, but you heard it here first on the first on the business movement podcast, catch that trash. So catch uh, that trash. if they ever use that, definitely <laughs> pay Miriam her royalty for coming up with that but no that's awesome i think another cool aspect and this is going to sound like a, a really simple question but i'd love to know your perspective do you think at its base you know being an entrepreneur is all about being a really confident problem solver like whenever something comes your way you're like okay i don't know how to do it but i have faith that like somehow some way i'll figure this out yeah i think so i don't think that entrepreneurs always feel confident like the, i mm -hmm. want to separate those out but they're confident in the idea that this can be figured out. And um, this mm -hmm. is, again, where I think having a coach in your corner is super useful because um, the other day I was interacting with my own coach. I think coaches should have coaches and I have my own. And I was processing some stuff with her and she challenged something that I was thinking and I had a totally new perspective. And I was like, okay. And in that moment, I wasn't confident, but her particular challenge made me confident that this particular problem is overcomable and it's a matter of doing the work, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, I think that that's something that entrepreneurs have. Really appreciate you mentioning, you know, your therapy background, your business coaching background, and us kind of just talking about successful entrepreneurs love to know in your life kind of as a business coach what brings you uh, personal happiness what brings me personal happiness oh my goodness yeah. okay like um little things that are big things i mean i love nature so right now we're mm -hmm. we're the moon is getting bigger and bigger and i heard on the 31st it's going to be like the biggest blue moon of the year so i'm getting excited for that um, <clears throat> there's some little program on my phone. I have an iPhone that I programmed to show me, um, pictures of nature that are pictures I've taken. So it's places I've been. And so all day it scrolls through these and it just makes me so happy. I can't even handle it. Um, I love to rescue huh. animals. I've rescued a ton of animals of different species and, um, some of them I have found homes for with other people, and some of them have come to stay and live with me forever. Uh, but I support a lot of things like that. I'm kind of in the people, pet, planet space where 
I want my efforts to be going toward helping those things. I, I love the Sheldrick Wildlife Fund. They help elephants whose baby elephants whose moms have been poached. Um, I love General mm -hmm. Giants Draft Rescue. They help these draft horses who are going to be shipped to the meat market and they rescue them. So on my mm -hmm. end, I'm rescuing what I can rescue and then I'm sending money. That sort of thing just makes me super happy. I get extremely happy when I have a meeting with a client and they have a breakthrough, like I can see it. They pause and they have an insight mm -hmm. and I know something's going to be different from then on, you know? Um, what else makes me happy? I mean, my dogs make me happy. Just their little, well, I have one big one and one little one and they're wagging tails and they're so happy all the time. That's pretty infectious. Sounds like you know, I appreciate the insight on happiness. There. I always like to know what makes people happy because ultimately everyone should be happy. I think that's broadly uh, whether people like to admit or not our life goals, but great insight there. And on a parting note, is there anything else that you think people should know, uh, whether it's in their business or their lives, you know, any of your entrepreneurial or wizardry insight? You know, I just think that people need to know that they have so much more control than they think they do. Sometimes people feel really out of control. And I want to say until you're dead, you always have choices. They may not be choices that you like, mm -hmm. but you do always have choices. So, you know, even if you're making the, the least worst choice, it's still a choice. You have your agency and don't jump into the space where you feel like life is happening to you. You happen to life. Got it. Awesome. Uh, Miriam, thank you so much for your time and your appearance on the Business Balloon podcast. Loved hearing about your background and some of your career advice and also just interesting stories. Uh, Daniel, it's been great. Thank you.